Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. April 26, 2015, episode number 77, The Pied Piper. I'm starting this recording on a Sunday night after a week chock full of activities. This weekend, fence replacement in the vegetable garden, a night of racing out in Pennsylvania, and work in the new bee yard are just a few of the activities that took place over the last couple of days. I'm looking forward to a sound sleep tonight and don't know if I'll get all of this recorded before I have to turn in, but I'm just excited to sit down and talk beekeeping, so thanks for joining in. While I was writing my notes, I watched a recorded version of the NASCAR Cup race. I was getting my notes organized for the episode and trying to figure out how much I can cram in here tonight. So instead of pontificating, let's get to business. Oh yeah, my name is Kevin England and this is the Beekeeper's Quarter Podcast. <laughs> Our feature for this episode is about queen piping. After that, I have two tidbits on care for package bees. For roundtable, I have no fewer than nine items. In the queue, how can you tell if it's real honey in the jar? I'll follow up on hexagons on point. A story of mad honey. A mention for Janice Zuzov's swarm lures. A share on radio entomology. For listener mail, a plug for the Bee Hugger, Bee Hugger YouTube channel and some white-eyed drones. And a tip to round out the episode, how to provide water for your bees, which we've talked about a lot, but two extra little tidbits using anise and a t-shirt. We'll explain. First, let's slide into the local hive report. Local Hive Report, it's been about two weeks since we last chatted, and I would say I'm about 98% better. I get a little tweak every now and then from when I fell down the stairs, but uh, eh, what I usually suffer with is my normal aches and pains of a body that reminds me I'm not a young man anymore. Kevin Moment, the good news is my mind is still of the notion that I'm a young man. I just have to get back in shape so my body can do what the mind commands of it. I'm eternally optimistic on that one, by the way. End of Kevin Moment. I fed our new package of bees with an internal feeder last weekend and didn't do anything but observe the entrance on the other three hives. I still have the entrances closed down as we had a frost this past Friday and Thursday before that. And this morning when I woke up and checked the thermometer at 9, I slept in because I was up all night, it was 37 degrees Fahrenheit, which is pretty darn chilly. I had a chat with Bob Kloss earlier tonight. We spoke about the weather and that it has been, to our recollection, cooler this year by far than it has in recent years. It has drawn even, however, in growing degree days. If you count the days over 50, the Charlie Ilsley growing degree day famous trend thing that he's doing. 
And to that end, I have to agree that the trees and plants, as we see around us, look spectacular. Two weeks ago, the forsythia bloomed. That followed my earlier... I always look for the crocus first. The forsythia is the second milestone. And the third one is dandelion. Today, I saw the first dandelions of the year running down Route 604. Have none in my yard yet, but that is an indicator where a lot of people say, do not reverse your boxes until you see the dandelions. Hmm. I reversed my hives two weeks ago. And Bob shared with me that the hives we reversed that weekend also from the mentoring yard, we put them down in the bottom because we weren't planning to being there uh, anytime too soon. And the bees, he went and checked on them this weekend, and they were up against the inner cover again. So we might have reversed them and put them in the bottom, but they came back up. Bob and I had a reminiscing conversation about his small little top bar hive that he has and the fact that we think it is so successful and keeps overwintering because it's horizontal, small in shape. And we think that the heat that is coming off the colony actually gets trapped in there horizontally and the bees have some warmth to work with. It gives me that notion that I've shared before that maybe that form factor kept small is actually the right way to go. But anyway, I stayed out of my hives today because it's too cold and I did not want to break the seals. I wonder if my hives did the same thing, meaning coming up underneath the inner cover. And I guess next week when I go to check them out, if it's warm enough, I'll take a peek and see if I can determine if they did indeed come back up underneath. The one thing I saw last week was that the grass needed some mowing in the bee yard, and I took care of that this morning. I never know how the bees will react to this, mowing the grass. And given that it was cooler today, I thought I was in good place. But you know what? I put my bee suit on. And I'm going to give this as a public service announcement. One time I went out there and was attacked by hundreds of bees mowing the yard. Ask me what was different from that day to any other day, and I'll tell you I have no clue. It's just a normal spring day, went out, mowed the grass, and all of a sudden I was covered with bees. Hundreds of them. They were trying to sting the mower. They were just totally covering the mower that day. I, For the life of me, I don't know what aggravated them. But I was fortunately in my Ultra Breeze three-layer mesh suit, and I don't believe I got stung once. And... I'm not a, uh, they don't sponsor me, but I am a huge fan. That day proved to me that that suit is stingless or near stingless. I can't, I can't honestly say I've ever been stung through one, although I know people who've said they have. It was worth the wait in gold that day for sure. So I would say to you, if you're going out to mow your yard, Mow your yard versus mow around literally where the bees are that they can sense the vibration of the mower is a different aspect. 
but I've heard people tell me that they were just out mowing the yard, and for whatever it's worth, the frequency of the mower and or the vibration that it creates travels, and it does agitate the bees sometimes. So anyway, that's not much about bees, but I have one other note. I went over to the new out yard today and mowed down the grass and sticker bushes where I'm going to keep the bees. The thick grass was mid-shin high, and there were sticker bushes, the beginnings of multi-flora rows, and some small trees in there. I have to say it was tedious and time-consuming, but it looked great when I was done. I might have done better with some sort of brush hog, which I don't own, or a heavy-duty weed whacker, which I do own. But I used my mulching mower instead and think the outcome was more satisfactory. I'm really, really excited to get some bees out there and learn how they do. I think it will be spectacular. So with that smile on my face, I'll end on a good note. And I'm just juiced that we are in spring again. I'm looking forward to going in the bees next weekend and see how they're doing. And I'm wondering if it's time to consider additional boxes and or splits as I do want to split a couple of my hives and get some additionals out of there. So uh, keep our fingers crossed and perhaps I'll record a short episode next weekend to tell you my progress. If anything exciting is going on, I'll have to make a mental note to do that. So local hive report done. Check. Before I go further into the episode, though, let me pass some contact and link information. Our website, which is still... Sorry, not updated from last episode. Is www.bkcorner.org. I'll get to that sometime this week. The contact email is kevin at bkcorner.org. Please, if you write me, tell me where you're writing from and how to pronounce your name. I also ask that uh, if you share things with us, let me know if you're okay that I could share that with others. I'd love to share people's photos, but sometimes I'm hesitant to do that because I'm thinking people are writing to me and disclosing to me and I'm never quite sure whether I can or can't share so I always uh, take a conservative side to that if they clearly say here's something for the listeners I'll pass it along but um, if you're going to send me something do let me know if you're okay with me sharing that with the greater community usually that's the truth but I want to make sure I don't trespass anything that is entrusted to me Uh, One last thing before I roll on to segment number one. I wanted to take a moment to say thanks to those who have donated. I don't actively solicit for sponsorship, but I do have a PayPal donate link on my site, and a handful of people have graciously donated on occasion, and for that I'm truly grateful. And if you've donated recently and I haven't said thank you, well, thank you. I do appreciate it. I can also say thanks to those for leaving comments in uh, iTunes for our podcast. It does really help the podcast when you leave comments in iTunes because it bubbles us up in the ratings and people can find us. Positive or negative, I appreciate the feedback and the effort. And I think the dialogue that I have with our listeners is one of the gifts that I take away from the time we put in behind the microphone. 
It's okay. Here we go to segment number one. Segment number one, I call this one perplexed by piping. The topic came up recently and something I've always had a notion to talk about on the podcast. What I'm talking about is queen piping. I personally have never heard a queen piping, but I've heard recordings of it. And I've taken the sitting out in the yard recently and seeing if I could hear it because now is the time. In this segment, I wanted to overview what it is, why it's done, and how it physically happens. Hmm. How exactly does a queen speak? Have you ever thought about that? Before I talk about piping in any meaningful way, let me play a sound clip from the web that lets you hear what it sounds like. Let me play it one more time. Interesting, right? One big, long pipe and then a bunch of small pipes after it. I had to reproduce that sound a little bit. There was a lot of noise over it, and I ran it through something to clean the sound up so it would be a little cleaner. It's a little bit low in volume, and there's some garbled notes on the end. That is not part of the Queen piece, but... You could hear that main tone in the beginning and a bunch of follow-up peeps afterwards. That is ideally what I want you to focus on. So a queen pipes as part of her communication to the colony and the bees pipe to each other in the form of communication. So, yes, it's my understanding that bees can pipe too, not just the queen. If you think about communication inside the hive, we're familiar with different forms of buzzing, piping, it happens all the time as part of a normal course of beekeeping. All the bees buzz in the colony, but individual bees can buzz and send a signal in specific manner and or piping. We probably experience the audible hum of a hive when the bees fire up their flight muscles to clear the smoke that we've injected at the entrance. And scientists have documented a sound that bees make at the entrance when intruders arrive. Something that we probably never notice, but the bees make, say, a note when an ant tries to call in the front entrance of the colony. You've probably heard an audible buzz that occurs when you jar a hive in any manner, meaning bang onto it. If one could listen at the bee level, you might notice individual bees piping as part of the response. It is believed that this might be an instrument to soothe the hive. And if you play this sound, the individual bees piping inside the colony to a disturbed colony, it is noted that they will calm down. Isn't that interesting? Of course, the piping that we're most familiar with is with the queen. Queen piping can be used for a number of reasons, but mostly it's for communication to the hive and more specifically to other queens that could be in the colony. During queen emergence, a queen that has been in the colony for a day or so and is ready to take on her arrivals could potentially pipe. She'll begin piping her signal to tell of her presence and to lure any other queens to a duel to the death. She would potentially have gone to other queen cells to tear them down, but perhaps the colony knows 
of another queen in existence and is holding her back and she'll have to pipe and have that encounter to earn her place at the throne. The sound I played a moment ago is a representation of a queen piping. In truth, the noise comes in many forms. Terms are used to describe this, such as tooting, honking, quacking, mewing like a cat, and others. They're all used to describe what the queen sounds like when she's making this noise. And to my notion, a queen could be outright open on the comb and making this noise, or she could be in the middle of a cluster or have bees on top of her, deep inside of a hive. The sound changes depending on the scenario of where the queen is located when she's issuing it. In the context of science, two terms have emerged as leading in describing this activity. One is tooting and the other is quacking. Tooting takes place generally inside the hive, while quacking is said to take place outside of the hive, say in a swarm cluster. Piping starts with one long sound, followed up by a few short bursts, like we just heard. Quacking sounds like a run of frog croaks to me, if you listen to a recording. My guess is that either can take place whether inside or outside of the hive, quite frankly. I have a recording of a quacking, so let me play that for you so you can hear what the difference is. So there's what quacking sounds like, especially at the end. You could hear it. It sounds very croak-like. Uh, do know that I cleaned that file up some. It had a lot of hiss over it, like the other one. And it's a bit distorted here or there, but you get the general gist of it. It is in contrast to piping, which had one long toot and then a bunch of different follow-up uh, short little segments. There it's more of an even boom, 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 boom quacking sound. I think there was some piping mixed in in the middle of that recording. It could have been a returning queen answering her. I, I don't know how to explain that, but it's really that sound at the end that sounds like a frog croaking that emulates what a queen sounds like when she's quacking. So the obvious question is, without any sound-producing organs, how the heck do bees make that sound? The obvious notion would be to think that they would draw air through the air holes that they use to breathe. This isn't, however, how it's done. A scientist thought about that and blocked off these openings. Uh, biologically, these things are referred to as spiracles. And it did not deter the bees from being able to make sound. They've also examined the biology of the spiracle and found that the closing apparatus over the spiracle is physically too small to resonate at the frequency required to make the sound of piping. The prevailing theory is that bees move their flight muscles to make the sound. You might recall from previous episodes, this is how we say bees keep themselves warm. They are able to detach their flight muscles from the wings and move them to generate heat. It turns out that they can make sound out of this also. When a queen pipes, you can watch her. She squats down along the comb 
and vibrates her flight muscles. It is here where scientists differ in opinion about what's going on. It seems agreed upon that the flight muscles create the vibration that resonate in the sound, but the rest of the structures involved are at odds. The queen appears to be purposely coming into contact with the comb in order to vibrate it. In addition, some bees that pipe are moving their wings in a scissor-type motion. Scientists don't think the vibration of the wing makes any of the piping sound, but a theory is that it's being used to possibly amplify the sounds in the hive. They have in fact removed the wings of a queen and she's still able to pipe. If you clip a queen's wings, she can pipe, but the frequency of the sound she makes will differ. I find it interesting that they move in a scissor-type motion. I would have guessed that it makes a sound like a cicada, but as we just noted, piping is not a result of the wings making noise being rubbed together. So what they are saying in one spot that I read is that the wing muscles are moving against the outer shell of the abdomen and making it vibrate at a frequency that is creating the sound. Interesting. The question about the vibration of the comb is, is it transmitted throughout the hive as part of a secondary signal? That's my notion on that. But whatever the case, it's extremely effective as you could hear the queen piping standing outside of the hive. So a million-dollar question is, how might you hear this in your apiary? Well, the thing about it is you have to do it when it's, the time is right. It's typically a virgin queen that is the one that is sending a signal to other queens. Spend some time in your yard when virgin queens are present, which is now for us in the United States because it's swarm season. And if there are hives that are in the premise of hatching emerging queens for swarming, it is possible that you could catch some hives piping. Piping comes from a virgin queen inside of a cell, even before they emerge. But it's more than likely when there's more than one queen in the hive and they're trying to signal the other. It has been noted that sometimes queen pipe when inserted into a hive, a notion that they might be asserting authority over a colony. And I've seen videos on YouTube and in research of this, um, queens in queen cages next to each other. That's not a good sign. To me, that means it's a virgin queen and it hasn't been mated yet um, because it's typically the virgin calling out other virgins to have a contest as to who shall reign the domain. I would guess if you pulled some frames of queen cells, not yet hatched, and put them in a queen castle, put them side by side, and as the queens are emerging, before they are mated, you might hear them piping between the various chambers because they know another queen is nearby. You could just literally do what I'm doing, which I said in the beginning, is try to go out in the evening and see if you can hear your queens piping. I don't know if any of my hives are in swarm state, but I'm curious to see, especially after I get some in queen castles this year, whether or not I could catch this phenomena. 
So please let us know if you hear any piping and check out our show notes for the reference notes to the insights for this segment. For segment number two, I want to talk about package bees. I want to talk about two topics here. I'll break them up. Um, They were topics that came about in my travels this week. First one about package bees. I had a discussion with state apiarist Tim Schuler, who, if we play our cards right, will be joining me in the first episode in May. I mentioned to him that someone asked me on a YouTube channel about putting mite treatments in with package bees, and I thought that was rather strange and said it's not a practice I'm familiar with and wouldn't think is necessary. Tim gently corrected me and indicated that he does believe that if you wanted to put an Apivar strip in with package bees, there's nothing saying that they can't come out of Georgia or wherever they're from with mites in tow. Uh, Think about it. They're being pulled out of established colonies and put into a box. And one of the jokes about queen producers, package producers, nuke producers is they cut their mite production by giving you half of their mites. (laughs) So in that nature, I guess you could take a new package while they're all out and they have no comb put an Apivar strip or do some sort of mild treatment. And that's key. I don't think you want to put a harsh chemical treatment in. Uh, Mind you, I know a lot of my listeners are treatment-free, but you guys wouldn't buy packages anyway. But (laughs) for those of you who are going to do this, it it is an idea. Um, Just follow the notion of this, is that if you knock all the mites off in the beginning, Your colony has a chance to grow through its first year, this is what Tim said to me, unabated by Varroa mite. And to me, that kind of makes sense. I could see that. Uh, They'll build fresh new comb without being sick. They'll go out and do a lot of foraging without being sick. They won't be losing bees, so they'll have the greatest number of workforce. And fact of the matter is they're off to a fresh, clean start in a new home uh, mite free or mite less lo- mite laden, I could say. Um, you know, it's an interesting idea. I don't know if I'm going to run out and stick an Apivar strip in my hive. The truth of the matter is, I'm not doing a lot of treatments these days. I'm trying to stay away from it unless it's absolutely necessary. But um, it's an interesting notion and uh, one to consider if if you're there. I guess the answer is it's not taboo. Um, Second part is we did the hive install at the mentoring yard for doing packages and several people left that day and the next day put in packages of their own. Uh, One listener on the video asked me about could they feed their hives with a Tupperware contraption that they made that had a sling of metal wire going through to keep the bees from drowning. During the video, I had mentioned that one way that people feed new packages if they don't have feeders and they don't want to put Boardman feeders at the entrance is to use a zip-top bag, fill it with sugar solution, lay it across the comb, and just put a couple razor slits in the top and it'll weep out and they can drink from it. This person was uh, keen on using their feeder that they made so what we told them is put a box 
over top of the inner box, or the bottom box, sorry, and put the inner cover over that and go ahead and feed them. There was debate at the time about whether you should put the inner cover on, put the box over it, and then put the outer cover over that and put the feeder on top of the inner cover. I would say that in my estimation, it could work either way. You could put the feeder right on the frames or you could put it on top of the inner cover. It didn't matter to me. Well, an interesting thing happened along the way. They freed the queen and the queen came through the hive and went up to the ceiling. I guess that's not that much of a stretch. If you think about bees in nature, they're going to go into a cavity and they're going to build from the roof down in the tree. And that's exactly what these bees did. They all clustered on the top. They started building foundation from the top down. And why? Because there's nothing to entice them down in the bottom. It's empty comb. It might smell like wax, but the heat and other things being what they are, the roof is the right answer. So I went over and changed the hive out for her. I gave her a feeder box, which is only about a two-inch shim. And that way she could have kept her piece. And the way that my feeder box works is it's a it's a ring with a queen excluder tacked to the bottom. But it has a shim underneath the queen excluder so the queen excluder doesn't lay on top of the frames. The point of that is the bee can come up across the top of the frame, go across the top of the bar, and back down. And the queen excluder is not laying down on it. However, I didn't want to have to force these package bees to pass through the queen excluder to get to the food that she had. And was still trying to help her with keeping that feeder that she made. So we turned the box over. So you have a queen excluder sitting right underneath the inner cover, which is sitting underneath the outer cover. The next couple days, she called me back. They were building comb down off the queen excluder. I was kind of surprised by that. I didn't think they would build off that plastic substrate. So what to do now? Just get rid of all of it. (laughs) Put an inner cover in. Move the bees down into the comb and let them build some comb. Once they have comb and the queen has laid eggs down there, they will not come back up there. That would be my notion. And then you could put a feeder back on. In her case, she only had two hives sitting out in the middle of a field, not a whole yard full of strong hives and weak hives and whatever. I even said to her she could use a boardman feeder. I drove out to her home. I dropped off a couple top feeders. Still explaining that it's a little bit cold. Remember, 37 degrees when I got off this morning. And liquid may not work. The other thing that I did is I gave her two blocks of sugar and left her there to uh, feed the bees. The fact of the matter is, with all the trees blooming and everything going on now, I think the bees would just go out the front entrance and get whatever they need. But um, anyway, it was an interesting experience and another learning thing whenever you're doing packages which you know again except for the one i just installed which is the first one ever for my yard i don't have a ton of practical experience so um it was good we we've had a lot of conversations amongst our members about this particular topic and 
how it worked. And I did get to speak to Tim Schuler, who said, yeah, they're going to go up on the top. And that goes back to the notion Bob Kloss had about the bees in our mentoring yards. After two weeks or two and a half weeks, they have come back up into the top of the hive. Presumably, we're thinking to get to heat because they left drawn comb down on the bottom. So how about that? Interesting package experiences to write down in the notebook to remember. I guess the bottom line is when it's still cool out and you're bringing packages up for the spring and you have an unusually cool, keep them contained in a small box. And I don't think I'd fuss that much about feeding them. You know, what I said to her is she could actually put some sugar water in a tray and just go out every day and just slide it in. And that little bit will service them for the time being. But again, when it's 65, 70 degrees out every day and there's trees in bloom everywhere, I think the bees are going to get what they want. So I only had two segments prepared for this episode, but a number of roundtables, nine of them, if I recall correctly. So let's go into roundtable number one. Called this one, How to Tell If It Is Real Raw Honey. This one was sourced by a member at the Morrison Somerset County Beekeepers Association via Facebook. If you're not a member of a bunch of different associations it's not a bad idea because members far and above can find a significant number of informational resources for beekeeping this particular one has its origin in the diy gardening and better living facebook page they provide according to their page organic gardening natural foods and remedies diy projects and crafts permaculture and homesteading life cycles life styles clean and renewable energy and better living exclamation point their page is facebook.com slash diy gardening better living that's all one word facebook.com slash diy gardening better living we'll have a link in our show notes So how do you tell if it's real raw honey versus adulterated honey? The first thing in their three tips is pour it in water. It should remain a mass on the bottom. And if it dissolves on contact, it is not real honey. Now, of course, if you pour it in hot water, it will begin to dissolve, especially if you stir it. But you're looking for a formation of honey and not just an instant dilution or a sugary mess that goes through the water. Honey holds its shape. Number two, honey soaked into a rag will burn in place if you place a lighter underneath it. Adulterated honey or not real honey is typically mixed with other sugar and water. And if you try to burn it, it just will not ignite. Honey is a pure sugar straight through, and sugar, when it burns, burns very well. Take a cheesecloth or some sort of gauze something, dip it in honey, light a match underneath it, hold a lighter under it, and it'll burn. And then when it starts to burn, it will burn freely like a candle. The last thing you could do is a viscosity test. 
This one's just simple enough. Pour it on your fingertip or pour it on a plate. In this case, I might even suggest you could use a paper plate. If it's real raw honey, it will stand up. It will beat up. It will ooze, but it will not flow out liquidy. If you pour it on a paper plate, it'll hold its shape, but the non-honey will seep and soak into the paper. To me, I always heard the test was to put it on toast. If it stays on toast and it beads up and doesn't run all over the place and soak into the bread, you know it's real honey. It might ooze depending on the temperature, but it will not spread and soak the paper on a paper plate like adulterated honey. So if any of these tests fail, it is possible that your honey is processed and not pure raw honey. Roundtable number two. This is called Follow-Up on Hexagons on Point. This is from Hexagons on Point feature episode number 74. So we talked about how bees build comb, but how do they actually get the honeycomb shape? The answer, according to a new study, is that the cells do not start out as hexagons, but as circles. They gradually form into hexagons by a subtle flow of the wax, which is turned semi-molten by the heat from a special class of worker bee. The solution that is proposed by a trio of scientists in Britain and China, led by Bushan Kalaharu of Cardiff University. I think I said that name right. They looked at what happens after waxy flakes are pulled from the bodies of foraging bees by specialist bees tasked with building the honeycomb. Working furiously, these bees operate side by side in adjacent and opposite circular tubes, which they build around themselves. They knead the flakes and tamp them into place near the triple junctions of their tiny 6mm cylinders. Heat provided by the workers and the physical properties of the wax do what's necessary. At a temperature of about 113 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 45 degrees Celsius, the wax starts to flow as an elastic viscous liquid. So think about it, the bees are heating themselves up they're pulling the wax sheet plates from their abdomen. They're bringing it up to their mandibles and they're chewing them. And all the while they're hot because wax bees, the creators are often in an area that's one of the hottest places inside the hive so that they can work with the wax. At the junction where they deposit the wax, surface tension causes the wax to stretch like toffee. It gradually pops upward, forming a tiny point that becomes an angle of the hexagon. During the process, the cell walls are continually stretched. Ultimately, the walls of adjoining cells fuse and become straightened, forming a perfect hexagon. So even though the riddle may have been solved through a combination of physics and math, the scientists are keen to pay tribute to the insects themselves and had this to say. Quote, we cannot ignore, nor can we not marvel at the role played by the bees in this little process by heating, kneading, and thinning the wax exactly where needed. End quote. 
This was published in a British journal in the Royal Society Interface. If you're interested in knowing more, check out our show notes. We'll provide you a link to the news section at discovery.com. The insect area of the website is where this report came from. Secret to Honeycomb Revealed is the name of the journal article. The label for roundtable number three is called Mad Honey. There are places in this world where honey is not a delicious treat as bees are sourcing nectar from plants that are detrimental to human health. One such notion is when they forage on the flower of a toxic variant of the rhododendron flower. Natives have coined the phrase mad honey when talking about this elixir, which has been used for nefarious purposes in the past as a side effect of eating this honey can lead to a condition that keeps blood flowing to a person's extremities. In a recent article from Gizmodo, the source of this roundtable, they expressed that, quote, the practice of dropping tainted honeycombs in the path of invading armies has been well known and often used as a military tactic as far back as the Romans, end quote article made a tongue-in-cheek comparison to the side effects being like a bad variant of Viagra, but the truth of the matter is this particular honey can, according to the Wikipedia website, lead to, quote, excessive salivation, perspiration, vomiting, dizziness, weakness, paresthesia, which is numbness, around the mouth, and low blood pressure, end quote. So as we already knew, not all honey is sweet as a treat. Some honeys might just drive you mad. Roundtable number three, I call this one Lemony Fresh. I wanted to call out a neat presentation that I took in at the Raritan Valley Beekeepers Association meeting on April 16th. The meeting had a mix of topics on the agenda, but the one that drew me in was using essential oils for a lure in a swarm trap. Janice, Janice Zuzoff, one of their officers, presented the topic and discussed some options for scenting the hives to make it attractive to scout bees looking for a new location for a swarm. The premise of using a lemon-based scent is that it mimics the pheromone that is released as part of the Nazanov gland, which bees use to communicate to each other via odors. She went through or showed and demonstrated a bunch of different products, and we got to smell them and see what they look like and see the containers for them. Uh, they were a mix of oils and actual physical plant products and I'm going to talk about what she showed and a couple things that I know on the topic here is one of them was just lemongrass oil um, lemongrass is a plant that you can buy typically in the store it's used a lot in Asian cuisine you could buy the plant and crush it up yourself and grind it or you can actually buy it in a tube like a tube of toothpaste in this case she had a bottle of oil that had lemon grass extract in it there was another product that she had that was uh, sourced from france sold by brushy mountain called bee charm and she had a burt's bee product called burt's bees bath and body oil and it was obviously the lemon scent one 
You could buy these products. One of the things about them is they have a high concentration of oil to them, and a little bit goes a long way. An alternative to that is to use something that's less harsh, um, maybe plant products. So she showed a plant called Lemon Verbena, V-E-R-B-E-N-A. I said that wrong. It's probably Verbena. And I know people have suggested a plant called Lemon Balm, and there's a bunch of different plants out in nature that have lemony, fresh kind of scent when you crush them. Even people have talked about catnip and others that have that minty, lemony thing that just provides an odor that the bees can pick up on. For that matter, I've heard people say spray lemon pledge and even lemon-scented pine sol in the box because they have those essential oils. How about that? So if you're going to use these things, there are different application methods that you can use. What Janice recommended is you could use a zip-top bag. Sprinkle some of this on a little cloth or a paper towel, put it inside of a zip-top bag, but don't zip it up. Leave it open. And I think the benefit of that is it's not exposed to the open air and it will evaporate slowly inside the plastic and release over a period of time. One of the challenges with these lures is you're going to put your hive in a forest, but sometimes you'll put them out where they get direct sun and the heat will gas off that lemon oil and you're not going to have a swarm lure for a long period of time. So being in plastic helps it from evaporating too quickly. So other suggestions, you could just simply sprinkle it on a paper towel, especially when you're using these oils that are so concentrated, they'll last for a long, long time, even if they're out in the open. And people sprinkle pine shavings and sprinkle them around, she said, and also other methods of just rubbing them across the bars and doing um, sprinkling the wood and so on. There's really no science to it, just you want a lemony scent emanating from the hive. And the good news about putting it inside a hive box is it's kind of, it allows the volatile oils to expand and then it'll probably guess out slowly out of whatever entrance you apply. And I have to emphasize one of the points she made was that we humans notoriously have a bad sense of smell when considered in the animal kingdom against other animals and insects. Dogs, for example, and insects, bees, can probably smell 10 times better or more than us. So um, what would you do with these products after you're, if you're not into this? You could put lemongrass in sugar water in the fall, was the suggestion of one of the participants. They do this to keep the ants away and to prevent mold from forming in your sugar solutions. I personally have purchased lemongrass and just left it whole and put it like right in the box and left it decay. And as it decays, it gives off a lemony scent. So another thing that I added, and I can't remember whether I said this in the last episode, but I know I posted a video of it recently, is another attractant that you could use instead of lemon is anise or anise, depending on how you want to say it. It's usually referred to as star anise. It has that licorice smell that you get. Um, a recent video that I discovered again that I shot of a talk from Tom Seeley, he talked about for some reason the bees are able to pick up on that smell from a far distance. And 
they use it for beelining, and I'm guessing it would be applicable in this uh, application too of trying to create a swarm lure. So pretty neat commentary. Uh, you think about from, you know, a scale of easy to do to hard to do. This is pretty easy. Just a couple drops of lemon in a box, put it out in the yard, and see if you can catch yourself some free bees. I want to take a moment to express thanks to Janice for the session and the hard work that she put into, obviously, to prep in that session and also the hospitality of the Raritan Valley Beekeepers Association, RVBA. I have the guilty pleasure when I attend these meetings of just being a regular Joe in the audience. Uh, a lot of times I go to these things and I'm a featured speaker or I'm obviously running our association meetings and I really do enjoy being one of the common folks sitting in the audience and taking this in. I get far more from the session and, and can appreciate uh, the information that people prepare to give to each other. So, um, Get out and attend your meetings, folks. You'll really enjoy them. Roundtable number four. This one's going to be a short one. Just wanted to give a plug for a YouTube channel called Bee Hugger. Ironically, because I was referred to as a bee hugger. I thought this was pretty funny. Um, there's a couple of workshops up there from Michael Bush, who's always a good listen. There's only a handful of videos. They appear to be from the West Sound Beekeeping Association. And I know that the presenter there has posted something as recently as a week ago. So go to YouTube.com and search for B-E-E-H-U-G-G-E-R. I think that came by way of a listener mail, although I've had it in the pile for a while. Um, anyway, interested in listening to some things from Michael Bush. They're out there. There's an hour, two-hour video and a second part, which is an hour video. And... Uh, I got to watch part of that because there was something I was looking for and I appreciate them posted and wanted to give a shout out for that. Okay, round table number six. And yes, I realized I've got my numbering all messed up and now I'm catching back up to where I should have been. Sometimes I label my round table topics with a number and then I switch them around and forget to change. And yeah, forgive me. Maybe the numbers don't matter anyway, but... This one's called White-Eyed Drones. Co-contributor to the podcast on occasion, Bob Kloss, sent me over an article from the BeInformed.org website about a phenomenon that I was not familiar with. One of the researchers in the Bee Research Lab in Beltsville sent a, or posted an article about and a photo of white-eyed drones. I have to say to you, I've never heard of that. I thought it was really cool to see the photograph of that. It's a little bit weird looking. Um, it says drones are developed from unfertilized eggs, giving them to have only one set of chromosomes. This means that all recessive genes are expressed in a drone and none are hidden by dominant genes. Never knew this was possible, and they're apparently not common. Have you ever seen one? That's a good question. If you haven't, you got a picture, send it over. It appears, according to the article, that even funnier things can happen, that drones can have one eye of one color and one eye of another color. Again, something I've never seen before. I'll post a link to this in the show notes so you can check it out. Our show notes are available at www.bkcorner.org. Look for episode number 
77. Roundtable number 7, this one's radio entomology. This one speaks for itself because it doesn't speak at all. It's a bunch of videos, and you have to go see it. I'll forgive you if you stop the tape recording whatever way you listen to this, since there is no real tape anymore, and go to a website. If you're sitting at a computer, it's radioentomology.com. There's a series of videos where they are taking cross-sections Similar to something like a CAT scan where they can look at a hive without opening it up and see what's going on and see its structure and so on. And not only can they look at a hive, but they look at various uh, things within. And I have to tell you that I especially liked the 3D video of the ancient bee trapped in amber that came from, oh, about 20 million years ago. Can you say Jurassic Park? So go check that out, radioentomology.com, right on the home page. You can click on the video section and watch a couple of videos of the scans that they do. There's a lot of discussion about what the impact to the bees are when they're getting scanned. I didn't dig that far enough into it, but um, just having the ability. I've always wondered about the fact that researchers are constantly opening the box. Wouldn't it be cool to be able to follow what a hive does without impacting it, like be able to see in, you know where I'm going with this, right? If there were some way that you could have this 3D look of everything going on at any given point with ever having to open the box. And I, I was having a conversation with Charlie Ilsley lately about spring patterns of bees coming out of winter and what they look like going into that swarm state. And could you find different cues visibly uh, sound audible i know people are working on this in a hive but every time you open the hive don't you change something in the ecology how about if you kept it alone but you could see in there in a 3d manner well now you could see they have the ability to do it i don't know if this nukes the bees i don't know if you have to take them out you know could you do this out in a field somewhere where they're in their natural setting all of these things i guess will we'll learn over time um but anyway go look at the videos it's very cool stuff radio entomology e n t o m o l o g y dot com all one word i believe we've made our way to round table number eight listener mail this one is a response to a youtube video we put up about a water bucket scenario which we talk about quite frequently now is the time to put water out i was bemoaning the fact that even if you put one up sometimes the bees won't find it and actually i was out looking at my hive area yesterday and saw that the water is all dirty know what that means my guess is that there's a raccoon somewhere washing its food in my water bucket for the bees <laughs> That's the only reason there could be that much dirt in it. I have the bucket out there. It has a brick in the bottom, so it can't be knocked over. Um, and it has been knocked over in the past, and now I see why. When I see dirt in it, my guess is something's washing its food, and it's got to be a raccoon. We have many of them around our area. But anyway, I digress because I'm off topic. John Duffy sent me something over saying, 
he put corks in a water bucket and put them in between two of his hives that are 21 feet apart, and they did nothing. So he tried a different tactic, tactic, which was to put an old, clean cotton T-shirt across it, and he had hundreds of them. Thanks, John, for the tip, because you know what? It reminds me of uh, others that I've seen that have employed that tactic, and that actually is the right way to do it. Um, I know Stan Wazatowski has a netting set down across his, and not just the corks or floating styrofoam peanuts. And I've seen another guy who lives in Warren County. He had water bucket with... Uh, I think it was a towel, and it was just draped over. And what happens is the the cloth, I'll say, it could be a towel, it could be a T-shirt, wicks the moisture up a little bit, and the bees land on it and just soak the moisture off, and they don't even literally have to walk down to water. And I'm wondering if I put that over, maybe it'll deter the would-be raccoon from going in it. Although, if they're thirsty... It's funny because we have ponds and we have a creek, but they're drinking out of my water bucket. So, anyway, uh, thanks for the tip on that, John. That's a that's a great one. Uh, give that a try, folks. Roundtable nine. This is the last one. I call this one. Oh man. I have one more listener email, and it comes by way of Omen. The source of the email is listener Mark Sipple from Granbury, Texas, who happened to be on a business trip, or still is, in Omen when he sent me a note. He was kind enough to forward me a PDF about the beekeeping practices in the country, and hmm, it is so interesting how differently they do it on the other side of the world. I guess I should first say where Omen is, as it might not be familiar to many of our listeners, and I have to say for myself, quite frankly, I wasn't too aware of it. Omen is an Arab country in the southeastern coast of the Arabian Peninsula. Described in a little more detail, it borders the southern end of Saudi Arabia and sits between Yemen and United Arab Emirates. The document he shared is actually akin to an infographic, and it was extremely well produced on the aspects of beekeeping practices, climate, species of bees, economy, and other facets of beekeeping as a practice in the country. The thing that stands out are the methods in which they keep bees in piles of long logs and harvest the product, and the practice where they keep bees other than Apis mellifera. They have a species of Apis floria, I'm assuming that's how you say it, F-L-O-R-E-A, and as they call it, it is the dwarf bee, and it shows illustratively how they harvest the comb and employ the structure to, to manage these colonies. It looks like these dwarf bees are kept in an open nest, and there's a representation in the illustration about how you would suspend it on these long rods that are hanging in a hole in the face of a wall that's in the apiary. Hard to describe, easy to see when you look at the picture. So to that end, uh, very cool stuff, something I've never seen before. Mark emailed me a copy of the PDF, but I was able to find a version that I could provide a link to in the show notes. You can click on and take a look for yourself. Do note that if you search for beekeeping in Omen, you can find this document. 
but you might find the non-English variant of what I have described. The link I provided in the show notes is the English version. Mark, hopefully I said your last name right, and thanks for being a longtime listener and now a contributor to the show. So that's what I had in store for this episode. I see that I've crossed over. I'm three seconds over an hour, and I like to try and keep these things to an hour. I know if they go much longer than that, uh, people tend to zone out. and Maybe you're already zoned out and in the twilight. I'll let you in on a little secret. I co- recorded most of this on a Monday night or whenever I said I was, but here I am sitting on a Saturday morning. It's been the week from Hockey Sticks this week with uh, something every morning all day long and every night and this is the first break I've had on a Saturday morning to get to it. It is 10:43 a.m. here in beautiful New Jersey and I'm gearing up to go outside and take a peek at my hives and generate the topic matter for the next local hive report. Had a recent discussion with uh, state apiarist Tim Schuler. I expect that I'm going to bring him in on the show. Uh, either the next episode or episode after that, uh, depending on his availability. He's got a number of things to talk about. have a special event coming up for May 15th, going out to the Northeast Beekeepers Association for a meeting they have coming up, and an invited guest. Um, We have our association meeting with a hands-on and a couple other topics, which I'm not going to share yet. I'll share after the fact. Um, That's May 16th, and I also know that June 6th, write it down, is our State Beekeepers Association meeting. It's at the Fellowship Deaconry in Basking Ridge area, New Jersey. We, the Northeast Branch, are the hosts, and registration is now open. We have Dr. David Tarpey, Associate Professor and Extension Apiculturist from North Carolina State University as the featured speaker. We'll have the Gadget Garage and a whole host of hands-on and other sessions going on there. Uh, If you're in shouting distance of New Jersey, maybe you're in Pennsylvania, maybe you're in Maryland, you want to take the ride up here and come do it, please come on up and join us. We'd love to have you, even from Delaware, and we've had people come down from New York to these things. It'll be worth the effort, believe me. Uh, We have a lot of really cool things planned. Live bees, good speaker, uh, good food. And you could say hello to me. I don't know how much <laughs> time I would have at that event to, to spend time. Afterwards, uh, we can have a beer, that type of thing, if that's what you're into. But I'll be the guy running around with, like a chicken with my head cut off as the MC and uh, chief cook and bottle washer trying to keep all of our folks going in the right direction. Um, we have a really good crew and a, a good game plan, and we've done this before, so hopefully it'll be smooth like butter but uh, uh we'll see on that date it's june 6th and you can go to nwba.njbeekeepers.org to see all the information about the event it's literally blasted on the home page there and there's a link for registration it's 25 dollars to register in advance it is 30 dollars to register at the door Sorry for the commercial, but uh, I know we have a lot of New Jersey Beekeepers Association, and this is the first official announcement that registration is open, so go on over there. The other thing that I'll tell you, um, 
The New Jersey Swarm Report is starting to come alive. We had our first swarms of the season reported this past week. We're up to three, but this is the weekend that we've seen over the last couple years. The May 1st weekend where things start to take off, and we would expect that we'll start to see a ramp. And uh, by the weekend, whatever we have collected, I'm planning on putting a map out to show where they're happening I know already uh, the three that were reported, one was in Jersey Cape area, one was uh, southern side of New Jersey, and the other one was middle central right-hand side. So nothing up in the north yet. And as you would expect, although I don't think the temperature differences in New Jersey vary that widely from the top to the bottom given how small the state is, but we do know that from... um, productivity standpoint they're usually a week or two ahead of us in their bees uh, development in their colonies and so on they take swarm management activities and whatever a little bit earlier than say central where we are and certainly uh, quicker than the folks up in Sussex County in the northern side bordering New York City and and uh, the other side of the state up there and so anyway njswarm.com is where you can follow all the action here and see where the swarms are happening. And please, if you have swarms in New Jersey that you see, you collect, you capture, go on over and fill out. It's five simple questions. Where you are, how big the swarm is, how high it was, and so on. And uh, also, if this is unfamiliar to you, you can go take a peek at what the data was from last year. There's a full report available out there. And... I think that's it. Uh, We'll call it a day. We really appreciate everybody listening. If you want to write in, it's kevin at bkcorner.org. I am in earnest going to switch to our new web format that we were trying to get going back in December and got stalled. I'm working through some of those technical problems and uh, anticipate that by early summer we'll be switched over. And I think that will be really helpful because I could post information as it comes through and better support the articles and information that we bring to you on the podcast with pictures. And I could have literally posted the PDF I just talked about a minute ago to the, to the blog and do it that way. So I'm really excited and, and uh, enthusiastic about getting that going. Now, if I only had minions to help me with some of this stuff. <laughs> so, okay, that's enough interested in getting outside and getting to the bees and getting some sunshine so thanks everybody for listening like our beloved bees when beekeepers go together we accomplish great things thanks again and be well